So for my kitchen table here in Dublin, during this period of self-isolation, uh, it's a fraught period for everyone. Uh, a lot of people just trying to get their hand on what's going on at the moment. Um, I am talking to some of my heroes and men and women who inspired me as a kid, inspired my interest in the sport of golf. And it is just with great pleasure that I now go over to Dallas, Texas, to a man, though, who is from Australia, but has made his name and his mark in golf. He's a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. We first met in April of 2013 when I chased him down for a short little piece that I was doing for CNN about the upcoming US Open at Marion. So we're going to talk about that and a lot more as we go in conversation with the one and only David Graham. How are you, David? Hi, Shane. How are you today? Very well. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be at home. I'm happy to be with my family. Yeah. I'm happy to be, I think, fairly healthy. And I'm so delighted to have your company for this little voyage, this little journey of discovery, and also a journey of reminder to so many people who have, I think, you know, reveled in your success, in your achievements, and the trials and tribulations that go with every professional golfer, because golf is not an easy sport. It's a sport where you lose more than you win. And I think, I don't know what the percentages are, but I think over 90% of the time you have to deal with losses and someone else's victory and how you actually prioritize that in your mind and how well you did or how well they did to beat you depends on your perspective. But um, we're going to touch on a lot of things, but uh, what was the first thing that inspired you about golf that kind of you felt a deep connection with the game? When, when did that happen? Well, I don't know whether I, when I'm my early stages, whether I felt a deep connection to the game. I felt uh, more of a necessity to get into the game. I used to, I was not a good student. Uh, I didn't graduate high school. I don't tell my grandchildren that, but I don't, I didn't. But they already know that. Um, and um, I first, my first introduction was in Melbourne, Australia, when I used to ride my bike through a little a cricket oval. And there was always on a daily basis somebody out there hitting wedges and everything through the uprights and the goalposts and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of saw that and I, there was a little nine-hole public golf course <clears throat> called Waddle Park. It's still there. And I actually stopped by there one day, and the gentleman in the golf shop, whose name was John Green, he asked me to come inside and asked me if I'd like to start to work there on the weekends. And so I got a weekend job doing odd jobs in the golf shop, primarily making tea for the boss and cleaning the shop and all that. So... That's where I first got in, introduced to it, not as a player, but more as a, as a hobby and something to do. And uh, when I got to age 14, uh, this gentleman asked me, would I be interested in interviewing uh, for a, a permanent job at Riversdale Golf Club? Wow. Uh, and I went home and obviously I told my father that I was going to quit school and go work in a golf shop. He was not happy about that and I can now see why but um, uh, so I went and I interviewed uh, with a gentleman by the name of George Naismith who was the head professional 
And it was actually ironic as where Peter Thompson first did his short-term apprenticeship. Wow. And so I got a job working there when I was 14 years of age. And I had started playing, and I played left-handed. I think uh, I think when I was in high school, I played cricket left-handed, uh, mainly to get the strong hand on top of the bat and my strong eye looking at the bowler. Um, and so I started playing golf left-handed. And um, about two years later, after being an assistant, I was hitting balls on the range late at night, which is the only time we were allowed to do that as, as junior assistants. And Mr. Naismith came driving down the road. The road ran parallel to the practice fairway, and he pulled up and he stopped. And he got out of the car, and he came over, and he said to me, he said, let me see you hit a couple of shots. And I hit two balls with my two wood left-handed down the middle with a little fade, and he looked at me and said, you'll never be any good left-handed. Wow. He said, I don't ever want to see you swing a golf club left-handed again. I want you to change to right-handed. So tomorrow you come get the bits and pieces of all the clubs and put yourself together a set of right-handed clubs. So I, I believed in him, so I changed to right-handed. And how old were you right there and then? I, w- I would have been about uh, 15 and a half, 16 years old. Yeah. And I, so I dropped everything. And ironically, about six months later, I was on the putting green in front of the clubhouse. And he came walking out of the golf shop, and I was still putting left-handed because I loved my eyesight mm. suited putting left-handed. And he told me, he said, if you're going to play right-handed, you need to putt right-handed. He said, people, you'll look stupid if you play right-handed and putt left-handed. So I turned around and putted, started the putting right-handed. So that's kind of where I started. And then I started to play in some some you know junior assistance tournaments and stuff like that. So I worked for him for five years. Wow. And and then he retired, and he had a brother that worked at a club, a public course, um, called Molden. And I went and worked for him for a couple of years, and I wasn't very happy. And I got a job offer to go to Tasmania, to a little nine-hole golf course in Tasmania. And I took the job. And again, I was very fortunate because I wasn't known as a player, and there was a very famous Australian golfer that worked for a company called Precision Golf Forgings. They started making uh, forged clubs in Australia primarily for the Asian market and the Japanese market. Very successful company. Uh, the chairman was a chap by the name of Claire Higson. And Norman, uh, Eric Kremen had come to this little club where I was. He had to play an exhibition with him, and he was on a promotional tour for precision golf forgings and I played nine holes with him and when we got done he said to me he said you need to get out of this place you have no future here I'm going to go back to Sydney and I'm going to talk to Claire Higson and I'm going to get you to come to Sydney and, and start to work for the company and that's exactly what I did and they had um, a bonus pool that you could play in and you you could get points for playing in pro-ams, and then they had the Sunshine Tour that went up through northern New South Wales up into Queensland and stuff, and they had points. And uh, I won the amount of points, and the prize was um, you got a free airline ticket to go and play on the Asian Tour. 
So that's that was the first tour that I actually played on. That was and the first tournament was in the Philippines in uh, uh, Manila, and then the second tournament was in Singapore, and I got beat in a playoff uh, by a very well-known Chinese player uh, and very successful in those days. Who was that? And that's kind of how I got started. Do you remember the name of the Chinese player, the well-known guy? No, I don't. I don't. I wish I did, but I don't, no. But he was good, and you knew he was good. He was good, yeah. He was good. He beat me on the second hole. I do remember that. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) And I remember I won a whopping $1,500, and I felt like a millionaire. Yeah. I think every pro will tell you of that moment where, okay, this is serious. I can actually make a living if I can keep on doing this yeah, and tapping into this sort of well of determination. Yeah, yeah. and um, on that on that sunshine tour, I met my wife, and yeah. uh, and uh, we got married, and then she joined me on the Asian tour. And I have a lot of memories of the Asian tour. I remember uh, uh, being in a hotel right across from the U.S. Embassy in the Philippines when uh, the militants started throwing bombs and hand grenades and and everything uh, over the fence of the United States Embassy. And then President Marcos's troops came in and a few little scatters of gunfire and they were all gone. And we were, we were young. We were laying up on top of the roof of the hotel watching it. They were burning cars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but did you know at the time, or did you appreciate it? It sounds like you did, that the, this is an incredible moment in time. No, I don't really think I don't really think we knew politically, you know, about the the functions of countries like that where they have demonstrations and riots and and uh, dictatorships and stuff like that. I don't think we really thought that much about it. I know they took us to the airport at like three o'clock in the in the morning to get out of there. And uh, I never went back. It was the only year I played there. And then I had a similar experience in India um, when they were going to have demonstrations and riots. Um, I remember getting on an airplane. Uh, Peter Thompson was on the plane. I actually sat next to him when we took off. It was a Pan-American flight to Hong Kong. And um, I got on the plane and I told Peter, I said, Peter, I said, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I said, I'm going to try and get my ticket to play golf in the United States. And he said, David, he said, you know, you could you could be the best player on this tour and you could make a fantastic living playing on this tour. Everybody likes you uh, and everything. I said, you know, I if I have to do this for a living, and you have to realize in those days too, that tour was pretty raw. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they didn't have courtesy cars and they didn't have, you know, we couldn't afford decent hotels and you didn't have your own caddy and, most of us, you couldn't take your wives with you because you couldn't afford it. Prize money was very small monetarily in those days. We thought it was okay, but you know we were all playing golf because we loved the game more, more so than the money. Of course, of course. It's just a yeah. fascinating start. Um, yeah. i tell you what we'll do now. We'll just pause for a bit of music, and yeah. it can be anything you want, and I mean that, anything you want, because it's got to reflect you and whatever way you like to enjoy music or what you get from music. Um, So without thinking about it too much, tell me what to play. It can be anything. Oh, any, any Beatles. 
Any Beatles. Okay. Yeah, any Beatles song will do me. Will we narrow it down to an album or will we just play? No, I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable about it. Just, I'll, no. Okay, can I help you then? I'm going to play one yeah. that I love that doesn't get enough airplay. Okay. And it's a, it's a beautiful song called And Your Bird Can Sing. Here it comes. There you go. Fantastic, and a nice way to start the musical element of our conversation with World Golf Hall of Famer, the Australian great David Graham, who is talking to us live from his bedroom, I think. David, is it a bedroom or is it a my, spare room? My grandson's bedroom. <laughs> Your yeah. grandson's bedroom, okay, very good. <laughs> in Dallas, Texas. Just very briefly before we get back into the career, uh, the reason you're in Dallas is what and why? Because you live there. Uh, I do live here. I've lived here since 1980. I moved from Florida uh, because there was a school based in Dallas uh, that was uh, uh, meant for one of our children to go to. So uh, my wife was adamant about our children getting a good education. Mm -hmm. So we upstakes and moved from uh, close to where Mr. Nicholas lives and moved to Dallas. Okay, great. The great Jack, uh, who recently turned 80, and Barbara, re only recently turned 80. They're an amazing couple, aren't yeah. they? They are amazing. Um, okay, very good. Uh, just before we do that career stuff, you said that you met your wife when you were a very young pro. Can you tell me who this wonderful woman is? Well, her name's Maureen, and I met her in far northeastern Queensland in a little town which is not so little now, I'm sure, uh, on the Great Barrier Reef called Cairns. Uh, she was born and raised there. From Cairns. And, uh, yeah. Very popular spot, yeah. actually. 
very I have we haven't been there in years. Um we haven't even been actually back to Australia since the uh President's Cup. Um not last President's Cup, the one before that. Got it. Uh my my parents are both gone and her parents are all gone and uh we just uh we just don't want to travel that distance anymore. Uh, if you'll permit me, because I'm five hours ahead of you, but my wife poured me yeah. a glass of wine, so I'm just I'm, having. I'm going to get my. I'm going to get my wife to bring me one too in a minute. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Um, so when you made the decision and you were talking to Tomo, the great Peter Thompson, who only departed yeah. this earth in the last couple of years, what an incredible man! Yes. Um, yeah. You had this deep conversation with him where he was explaining to you that you could really be the figurehead for the tour. You could be the poster boy for this. Uh, Sunshine Tour, Asian Tour, whatever, whatever. Yeah. The early days of the Asian Tour, which is, I'm yeah. glad to say, thriving now. And it uh, is. Yeah. And Mr. Cho, who leads it, is uh, a man I must say I find very impressive. But um, yeah. these are the early days. How old were you when you were kind of making this decision to go to the States? Uh, yeah. Twenty-two or three. But you, you have to also to. Uh, you have to understand too that we, or me, or a lot of us, were so blessed in those days because, you know, Jack Nicholas came to Australia. You know, Jack Nicholas won six Australian Opens. You know, can you imagine the greatest player in the world traveling to Australia yeah. ten times or so and won six Australian Opens in in that generation of early jet travel? Mm. Gary Player. You know, won seven Australian Opens at the same time. Arnold Palmer won an Australian Open in a, a, a Masters tournament in Australia. So we were blessed that those top players were more than prepared to fly that far to play in, in those days, what was considered a very significant Australian Open. Mm. And um, and I remember a lot of times that I I made a point of going and sitting on the end of Gary Player's bag and watching him practice. And I remember specifically one time uh, we played at Victoria Golf Club mm-hmm. and it was a Wednesday and it was raining like crazy. <laughs> and I was sitting up in the clubhouse looking out the window and somebody walked by and said, who's that idiot out there hitting practice balls? <laughs> And somebody replied, that's no idiot, that's Gary Player. Yeah. And so I went down and put my rain suit on and went out and started hitting balls right next to Gary Player. Um, I played uh, uh, my first when he came to Australia to play at Royal Hobart. I was on the putting green and uh, he walked up and said, I've never been here before. Uh, Do you want to show me the back nine? And of course I said, yes. same kind of thing happened uh, at Metropolitan with Mr. Palmer when he showed up late Wednesday afternoon and wanted to play, and I just happened to be on the putting green at the <laughs> same time. So, you know, we were very fortunate to be exposed to the best of the best at a very young age, and, and I took uh, I took a strong advantage to that. You know, I learned to practice more. Uh, I learned... Uh, that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Uh, I learned, uh, you know, and I met Lee Trevino in Australia. The first time I've ever met Lee Trevino was in Melbourne at Yarra Yarra Golf Club. And uh, 
he introduced me to his agent who in early stages of my career was very helpful to me to get started. So we were lucky that those type of players were coming to Australia so that we could get exposed to them. And for you, given the level of your determination, I would imagine, and your ambition, uh, this was like a beautiful osmosis just to be around these guys. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was, you 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 watched Nicholas when Nicholas practiced on um, Wednesday afternoon. He had two sets of golf clubs and he had one set laying on the ground and he had his regular ones that he was playing with. And I said to him, I said, what are you going to do with that spare set of clubs when you go back to America? He said, why? I said, well, I'd like to have them. Could I try them? He said, absolutely, you can have them. He said, you know, try them as long as you like. If you want them, keep them. If you don't want them, you know, give them back to uh, Dunlop Schlesinger. Mm. And I kept those clubs for a long, long time. You know, uh, a lot of little things like that. Uh, Trevino stole a putt from me, you know. <laughs> I was on the... <laughs> Uh, I was interesting. I was on the range at, at uh, Carmel Valley during the uh, U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. We were hitting balls there. They were helicoptering us to and from the golf course. I think mainly because Arnold was staying there and we got a ride. <laughs> and, and he was hitting balls on the range. And I was always known for having some Tommy Armour putters. And I went on the range and he said, how many putters have you got? And I said, well, I've got three off. He said, let me look at them. So I let him look at him. He said, give me this one. Give me this one. I said, oh, no, that's, that's my favorite. He said, no, what do you want? I'll give you something in return. I said, well, I, I'd like a decent set of irons. I'm not happy with my irons. So he had his car. He had a white Cadillac parked right across the street. He said, come over to the car. He said, we'll find you some clubs. And this was like, and we went over there and uh, he rattled around, opened up the trunk. There must have been a hundred clubs in the trunk of his car. I said, well, I like, I like that one with the leather grip on it. Can you find the whole set? Oh, he said, yeah, I think I've got the one iron through the pitching wedge. I said, awesome. <laughs> and I actually used that set of irons to win the Cleveland Open with. That was the first tournament that I won in the United States with those irons. Holy smoke. Yeah. Oh, the stories are unbelievable. Yeah. Do you mind? Have you, you, you have written a book, haven't you? Uh, well, I've not written uh, – um, a full autobiography. I've written a couple of books. Uh, the first one that I wrote was uh, a, a, a lesson book coupled with some autobiography, but I refused to let them put a lot of it in the book mm. uh, because it was about my father. Okay. okay. And I didn't want that to be about the book. Mm. And um, then I wrote another one on mental toughness, mm. uh, which was quite successful. But I've never written uh, an autobiography, and I most I never will. Well, hopefully this is um, a sense of your autobiography, uh, you know, from you in, yeah. in first-hand account, which I think is yeah. part of the goal of this whole series, of this whole platform, is that we get authentic voices on and we hear from them firsthand giving an account. And I might add as well, given um, my limited knowledge of you uh, as a person, um, one-to-one, but we have, we have worked together and we did, a, we did a one-on-one in Augusta a couple of years ago, which was a real thrill for me. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll put up a photo of it. I've got, I've got a beautiful photo of it. Actually, I must send it to you if you don't have it, but 
um, despite your incredible determination and despite your um, relentless pursuit of excellence and the toughness that is required, you are actually a really big softy and you have yeah. got uh, a propensity to get very emotional. And I'm, sen- uh, I'm well, sensing elements of it now because I'm looking at you on my screen, on my kitchen yeah, table as I, we talk. I know. I know you are. Um, I, I really was never like that. Yeah. I, I was actually a pretty tough son of a gun when I was competitive. And I think that was, I, I kind of I got some of that from Jack because I, I played a lot of golf with Jack. I never saw Jack hit one golf shot without giving it 100%. Mm. You never saw Jack hit a backhand putt. You never saw Jack throw a club in total disgust. Mm. You know, his control of his demeanor on the golf course, and that's evident by uh, when he played at uh, St. George's and shot 81 or 82 or some crazy to score in the first round yeah. and then came back the next day and shot 69 and made the cut. Yeah. But I, I wasn't super emotional uh, until I got on a lot of medication mm-hmm. and until I found out that I had heart issues. Mm-hmm. And how are you? Then I became. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know. I understand. I remember you, you explained that at the time and you've just reminded yeah. me of that because, well, look, that's a serious life issue that needs proper medical attention and um, yeah. care. But yeah, it probably loosened a few things in your inner inner, think, inner yeah, steel. It it's, it softened a few elements I, of yeah. that, that. Well, that, and I, I think the fact that I knew that I'd never play competitive golf again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that had a little bit to do with it. I can only, yeah, yeah I can only but appreciate But I, I do get a little bit carried away now and then. Yeah, it's cool. I like it. And don't don't stop being yeah. being you because, you know, you are you. And this is you right now um, dealing with what you have to deal with as we all deal with our own stuff. Everyone's got their own thing going on or they have family yeah. issues, whatever, and there's nobody escapes it. And it's amazing, actually, when you look at what we're all going through right now, which is just this period of, I think, intense reflection if you're if you're open to it, um, because everyone has been normalized by this event that is global. And to be, to be truthful, and you're a global traveler, I've been fortunate to travel to many parts of the globe now in, in, my, in my role with CNN over the last seven, eight years. And I think everyone's the same, David. I think every country, you know, everyone has traditions and that has to be respected. Yeah. But actually everyone just wants the same thing, which is a couple of decent meals a day, some fresh water. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, if you're over the age, you want, if, <laughs> if you're over 18, you want a few libations every now and again, and you want the company of sure. good friends and you want to fall in love and you want to have love around you and you want to have just good things in your life. And yeah. it doesn't matter if you're in Timbuktu, Tasmania, Thailand, or Tipperary. <laughs> yeah, which is where I'm from. Well, I'm I'm um, I'm fortunate that I'm past the stage of how many square feet my house is, or yeah. what kind of car do I drive, or how expensive my tie is, or what yeah. kind of shoes I wear. I'm way past that. I live most of my life 
in gym shorts and a T-shirt anymore, and I'm quite happy with that. You're sporting a nice white T-shirt uh, with the it is, cha- yeah. champion logo, uh, which I must yes, say, I'm, it is I'm, my champ. Yeah, <laughs> good for you. I just finished walk. I just finished walking. So, yeah. Um, David Graham is my guest. David is live in Dallas, and uh, this is a in conversation podcast with mm-hmm. one of the greats. And David is a winner all around the world, and was elected into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2015. Yes, 2015 in St Andrews of all places. How yeah, cool was that? how cool was that? Yeah, yeah. Bruna College was perfect. Bruna Hall and St Andrews campus was beautiful. So you were there with the likes of Marco Mira, who went in that year, and let me see, yeah. Laura Davis tried to make Laura it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah, and she kind of yeah. arrived late because she was at the U.S. Very, Women's yeah. Open. Yes which I was at covering that one for Fox in the States and she was so determined to make it, but she was going to play the championship and then hightail it. But do you know what amazed me about that just between ourselves? Well, it's for the record. Uh, Laura had to make her own way all the way there. Not one effort was made initially in terms of just getting her from the course to a flight and... I, just, I think there's uh, there's a lot more than that. I think the the um, they either had a rain delay or something, and they she couldn't make the original. Yeah, like that. A lot of things just just things and just ruined she got it for stuck her. in London. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but, but she, she did show up, which was did. really good. Yeah, she yeah. she got there in the end. Uh, very special yeah, getting talent. In, getting yeah. getting into the Hall of Fame and being inducted at St Andrews was was uh, pretty cool. Yeah, I was just reading the other day um, because I have a fascination for Bob Jones and Bob Jones uh, was given the freedom of St. Andrews in 1958. And actually yeah. what, what struck me was when I was reading it was, and I... I in, the, in that room. Yeah, and I in can't... In that room. Yeah, and, and he made... Well, he was a very learned man, obviously, and yeah. had a couple of degrees from um, Georgia Tech and... He did another, well, he was a law, law degree from there, and then he did another degree, degree somewhere, Emory College, I think it was. But he was, a, he was a man of letters, a man of words, and uh, his speech is quite magnificent. And obviously he delivered it in his Georgian droll kind of accent, which is charming in its own way. But he was especially moved by it, as you can imagine, because it's such a part of his story. But... What I forgot, and it just I was reminded when I read it, but he was the actual captain of the United States team that week. So it all coincided beautifully with the first ever playing of the Eisenhower Trophy, which effectively is the four top amateurs in right. the country uh, playing against, uh, you know, a, a field of nations. It was like the Olympics of golf back then. And Joe Carr was playing for Great Britain and Ireland in the first one. And... Um, Bob Jones then was accorded the freedom of the city of St. Andrews. Is it a city or is it a town? It's probably a city. It's a small city anyway. Town, but it's, it's, town, a, it's in a township. A, a township, yeah. But it's, it's an extraordinarily special yeah. place for obvious reasons if you're a golfer, but the university yeah. there is kind of special. But he knew that he would not be returning, you know, and yeah. he knew that his physical condition was such that all of these moments were so precious and he would pass away then, what is it, maybe 13 years later, but the 60s were a terrible time for Bob Jones in terms of his health. So there he was. Well, I think I think Jack Nicholas uh, 
received that award too on that same stage. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Gary Player did too. And our own Padraig Harrington received it as well. He, uh, Padraig Harrington, did, yeah. Did. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was 2010 when he was given it because obviously Podrick had won two opens by that stage. And, yeah, uh, and he's up for he's up for World Golf Hall of Fame for sure. Uh, being nominated should yeah. get in quite easily, I would think. Well, absolutely, yeah, and we certainly hope so to join Christy O'Connor Senior. And the first ever Irishman, of course, was in 2007. Joe Carr, who we've spoken about, and who I'll be definitely doing a celebratory um, podcast about in the not-too-distant future. But back to David Graham. So you get World Golf Hall of Fame. Um, can you describe the emotions of that that experience? Uh, well, I was I, I tried to prepare as much as I possibly could. And I got some good input uh, from people. We were given reasonably strict instructions as to how long to talk for because it was televised live. Um, and I read the information and, and it said, you know, please limit your speech, to which I don't think very many people have ever adhered to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope uh, not. Mark O'Meara was one of them. Lorena Ochocoa was the other one. She talked for about 40 minutes, I think. Anyway, um, I, I wrote what I wanted to write. You can't write everything that you want to say in five minutes. Mm. But I wanted to touch on the people that I thought had the most impact on my life outside of my family. Uh, so I wrote it, and I, I wrote maybe 10 or 15 variations of it, and then I practiced it, uh, and I, I timed it to where I got it down to about five minutes and 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I got through it reasonably well. Uh, I got a little bit touchy when Arnold's sitting right in front of me, mm. and then and then Gary's sitting right in front of me. Uh, my wife and my kids are sitting there, you know. So it was mm. tough, you mm. know. So I stuck I stuck to the monitor, and I think I, I I finished on time. And I if I had to do it over again, uh, I would have talked more about Gary Player. Mm. Uh, uh, and I did not talk enough about him. I should have spoken more about it because I think he was the one that really went to bat for me. Mm. Uh, and um, I know Arnold did and I know Jack did, but I think Gary did the majority of the of the work in front of the scenes and behind the scenes. Um He's like oh, a dog only, with a bone, isn't he, Gary? Gary is like oh, a dog God. with a bone. He never gives up. And I, 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 in my opening remark, I said, you know, this is fantastic to get um, presented by golf's greatest ambassador. Um, and I think I could have added some more to that towards the end, but I didn't. Well, I think it's an appropriate time to play another piece of music. And I, I, because of what we've just been talking about, David, uh, I want to play something that I think is highly appropriate, but it's a very modern track that your your grandkids will enjoy and uh, your son <laughs> will enjoy even more. But it's very applicable to you and to that incredible class. You mentioned Lorena Ochoa. I would encourage anyone yeah. to to listen to her speech in her native tongue, yeah. the Mexican superstar. 
Uh, Mark O'Meara, yeah. a very, very articulate man, very special man in golf with a great yeah. history. And uh, Laura Davis, who's just a special, special person from this yeah. side of the pond, and yourself. May, what what an illustrious class, yeah. If I had it to do over again, I maybe should ask John Hawkins to do it because he's, he's fantastic. <laughs> to write it for you or to... Yeah, no, do it for me. Just say... You get up and stay, say what you like, but you go say it for me. <laughs> okay, yeah. John Hawkins, formerly he, of Golf Digest, yeah. a very yeah. erudite, yeah. opinionated yeah. man who goes yeah. to bat on a lot of things. Yeah. The courage but of his convictions are great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a good speaker. Anyway. He is. He is. No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I did. Well, this song, appropriately, um, is written by... A man called Danny O'Donoghue, who's no relation, but he's from Dublin. And uh, there were a couple of other talents involved in this, but this is called Hall of Fame. Yeah, you can be the greatest, you can be the best. You can be the King Kong banging on your chest. You can beat the world, you can beat the war. You can talk the guy, go banging on his door. You can throw your hands up, you can beat the clock. You can move a mountain, you can break rocks. You can be a master, don't wait for luck. Dedicate yourself and you go find yourself. Standing in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And the world's gonna know your name. Yeah. Cause you found with the birth of fame. Yeah. And the world's gonna know your name. Yeah. And you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. You can go the distance, you can run the mile. You can walk straight through hell with a smile. You could be the hero, you could get the gold. Breaking all the records they thought never could be broke. Yeah, do it for your people, do it for your pride. And you're never gonna know if you never even try. Do it for your country, do it for your name. Cause there's gonna be a day when you're standing in the Hall of Fame. And the world's gonna
of fame, especially for our special guest, Mr. David Graham, who is uh, live from Dallas for this particular In Conversation piece. And thrilled to have you. And congratulations on everything that you've achieved. We've touched on a few of them and we will touch on plenty more. But um, let's talk briefly about the build up to majors. You did score two incredible wins in 79 and 81. We'll focus on them, I think, in um, in isolation. But with regard to your approach to peaking for those crucial four weeks in a year, and you were, you know, you were in a special place where you got to play in four majors a year for a long time in your career. Um, what, what was the obsession like? Well, obviously, you know, they're different. There's no question that they're different. I, I was never either good enough or uh, cocky enough to ever go into um, a major tournament saying, you know, I'm going to win this week. This is my week. You know, all I ever did was get a good feel from practice rounds and a feel for the course and a strategy for it. Um, I think the PGA was a huge uh, change in my life because I'd never been there before. I was about to shoot 63 at Oakland Hills, which Hogan had called the monster. He brought it to its knees. Yeah. And I was on the 18th tee, needing four for 63, which was just completely unbelievable. And I made six. Mm. And I very fortunately won the playoff. And as we have seen over the careers of a lot of people, if you lose a major championship in some way like that, a playoff especially, or miss a little putt on the last hole or something like that, it, it in some cases ruins people's careers. Yeah. Um, and I often think back to what would have happened to my career if I'd have lost that tournament after being in the position that I was in. And fortunately, I've never had to really analyze that too much because I came out on the right side. Mm. And fortunately, too, it didn't damage Crenshaw's career because he turned around and won two Masters tournaments, which was very good. And, mm. um, and I think once I won that tournament, it allowed me to do a lot of things that I never really thought that I'd be able to do it with the 10-year exemption. Mm. It allowed me to, to settle down in this country. It allowed me to know that my family could be born and raised here and, and that I had a tour for at least 10 years that I could play on full-time. And that was a huge benefit. So that got me out of having to worry about the top 60 on an annual basis and losing your exemption and then, you know, either having to go back home because you didn't have a place to play or, mm. or whatever. And there wasn't too much to fall back on in those days. You know, there, there wasn't much in Europe in those days, not like there is today. And, you know, there wasn't much on the Asian tour and there's certainly other than about three or four tournaments a year in Australia. So if you lo if you lost your exemption, uh, you only had once a year to qualify. So, you know, that 10-year exemption was huge as far as I was concerned. And I don't think 
I don't think I'd have won the Open had I not won the PGA. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It is amazing. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about Marion. I do want to go more in depth about both the Oakland Hills experience and uh, Marion at some other point, but uh, just for the benefit of this particular edition of this In Conversation piece. I mean, the similarities with Hogan are incredible. The connection that you have with the great man, um, who so many of us are just besotted by, for, for obvious reasons, because he was he was the uh, the hawk. You know, he was the, he was the original... Yeah purist in so many different ways but to have won a PGA at Oakland Hills and then to to go ahead two years later to Marion storied Marion which was hosting its first US Open since 1972 when Trevino got the better of Jack Nicklaus and and uh 71 I beg your pardon and uh it's just amazing I just I uh, but the, there's there's so many different elements to the story um your final round in Marion, the imperious ball striking, the ability to just get the job done. In the US Open, which is like ultimate test, that is their obsession in the USGA. I, I get it. Sometimes I think it's a bit extreme and um, it can make fools of certain people. But then if you really dig deep and say, okay, well, if it was like this for Mr. Hogan and Mr. Nicholas and how they prepared for majors and how they prepared for a U.S. Open. They both won four and five if you, if you were to, to buy into um, Hogan's Hail America back in the 40s, but that's another story. It's just the actual test. And by this stage, you'd played in several U.S. Opens, but Marion just has this romance about it. And it's for good reason, given that Jones won there and... Hogan won his miraculous open in 1950 with the one iron to the 36th hole on that Sunday and then the playoff the following day. And here you are kind of arriving at Marion with all of that history. But I presume you weren't even thinking about that. You were thinking about one shot at a time. Are you talking about Sunday, the last day? Yeah, but the whole the, the whole well, the whole see, I, the whole championship. Yeah, I mean, Sunday is this perfect I, yeah, conclusion. But yeah, well, I got I got very blessed because on um, Wednesday afternoon, I played eighteen holes with Gary Player, and we got off the course and we're walking to the clubhouse, and he said, "David," he said, "I've never seen you play so well, man." said, man, you're playing beautiful golf. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that was really nice of him to say that. You do that. That's quite a good impersonation yeah. of him as well because he is so, that kind of dude. Like who yeah. kind of, He'll and, almost uh, shake you and tell yeah. you to believe in yourself. And, uh, my, my other story with Gary was we played, and he's before that, before the PGA actually, and he said, David, he said, you're – your backswing's way too short. He said, you've got to get a heavy club. You've got to stretch your muscles. You've got to get stronger, man. Mm. Your backswing is too short. You won't last long playing with a backswing like that. So I went and I built a heavy weighted club. I filled the shaft with lead, and I practiced swinging that thing for a long, long time. I practiced with it every day. Wow. And I think at the Open, uh, my backswing was most likely as long as it's ever been. 
and I actually swung that weighted club every afternoon after I'd finished playing during the tournament. And that was great for me. And I, you know, I, I would never say that I went to the course going, you know, I'm going to win. I mean, I was in second place, so I knew I was playing well. Um, I had absolutely no idea that I would do what I did. Um, and I really was oblivious to that. It wasn't until uh, I overheard Bob Rosberg, who was doing ABC, he was walking in our group. A former major uh, champion, he, it must be out of yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I heard him say when I was walking to the 18th green, uh, he said, this young man has hit every green in regulation. Mm-hmm. And that's who really brought the round to a, to attention. Interestingly, too, you know, if I'd have done that on Thursday, nobody would have known about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and other players have mostly done it on Wednesdays and Thursdays, but never at Marion on a Sunday at the U.S. Open. Unbelievable. So that was, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty cool. It was a good day. Yeah, it's it's incredible the way how things have changed, you know, in terms of communication and especially from the course. And it's happened rapidly over the last 10, 15 years, just to briefly kind of yeah. just contextualize that because they now measure everything and everything is a stat. Every every possible detail from even how many practice swings you take, the the depth of your divots. I mean, they they have all of this information, which is now about to be used in a, in a peculiar way, um, which I'm not entirely delighted about um betting is what i'm talking about so that's another topic altogether but like this information has now got a commercial purpose uh but that is another story the information though from bob rossberg a man who was following you who won a pga championship and was one of the golden voices of of abc and espn for many years and dearly departed but um he knew what he was seeing and he had a microphone that allowed him to communicate to to the viewing public. Yes. That there was something a bit special going on. What about you and what you were aware of during that final round in terms of your your blinkers and your your approach? I was was not aware. And I can honestly say I was not counting hole by hole, stroke by stroke Mm -hmm. and going, oh, that one's on the green, that one's on the green, that one's on the fair. I was not doing that. Mm -hmm. I was um, I was pretty comfortable when once I birdied fifteen to little par four up the hill. The hardest shot on the golf was well, the second hardest shot on the golf course was the the tee shot at sixteen because if you missed the fairway you couldn't carry the canyon you had to lay it up and I hit three wood off the tee and it in the middle of the fairway and I hit. I think five or six on on the green, about ten feet. Um, I wasn't really comfortable until I hit my tee shot at eighteen, which was clearly the best shot that I hit all day. And eighteen under the circumstances, of course. Yeah. And so, yeah. so like it's worth kind of just delving into because the gladiator which i is a word that i tend to overuse when i'm describing people like you men and women who are at the uh, the elite level and are able to put on a show under very very testing circumstances yeah the focus is 
is, is never the, 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 when you get in that bubble there are no distractions you cannot hear a thing and you're kind of focused on whatever that process is um, yeah. but it's one shot at a time well, isn't I, it it's one shot I at was, a time I, I was also very blessed that for many years when I lived in Florida I had the good fortune to go with Jack Nicholas every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday before the Masters. Amazing. And play with him. So I saw, yeah, I saw how he prepared. I saw how he got his yardages. I saw where he practiced putting from. I saw him concentrate. I saw everything. I, I learned so much. I learned concentration from him. It's a master class. And, and, a master class. Uh, yeah, he was the best of the best. Nobody comes close. Uh, no disrespect to Tiger Woods, but you know, um, Nicholas was just he. Nicholas played to win tournaments. He, he liked Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods plays to win. He doesn't oh, yeah. play to finish third. <laughs> no. And so I had that kind of exposure from him, which was very important to me. And I'd practice with him a lot. I'd hit balls with him, and, and we'd talk golf, and we'd talk the swing, and we'd go home back to the hotel, and we'd have, you know. 12 or 14 dozen McGregor tawny golf balls and we try to figure out which ones fit through the old ring and which ones <laughs> didn't and which ones floated the right way up in the in the tub and and we he'd take you know he'd take 15 or 20 golf balls out on the golf course and we get on number 12 and he'd hit three balls and he'd take the one or the two that went within about a yard of what he wanted it to go and he'd Tell his caddy to keep that one. We're going to use that one on number twelve. We need a new ball on number twelve. We're going to use that one. Mm. If one hit one hit the sprinkler head down the second hole and went forty yards past the other one, he said, "We're going to keep that one. That one went the furthest." Amazing. <laughs> and you never you never saw where it landed, but you know, and that's the way golf balls were in those days. You know, changing golf balls was a nerve wracking experience because you never knew what you were going to get. And it's worth reminding. I mean. Yeah, and you can challenge anyone of the current crop or just any average golfer to try and hit a persimmon wood or try and guide a balata ball. I mean, obviously you could shape them a bit more, but with the equipment, you know, which was the best that was available at the time, it was it was it was it was not easy. I mean, but there was a lot of craftsmanship in terms of how they were manufactured yeah. and all the rest of it. But you just the game today is a totally different game, which is another story. But I just yeah. find it fascinating the um, the level of excellence that is was required to just do the job as well as you well, guys I looked, did it. Uh, there's a uh, there's an old set of McGregor irons in in the golf shop where I'm a member, and every and there's an old set of Wilson irons there too. And every now and then I'll pick up those one irons and look at it and think. Did I actually play golf with these things? <laughs> Did I actually think this was a good club? <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, you know, it's fascinating in the USGA Museum, which is the oldest sports museum in America, and it's in Far Hills in New Jersey. And uh, you will, if you go into the Hogan Room, see his one iron, you know, which went missing for a long time because it was stolen pretty much straight away. I think it was actually on that Sunday no, it was finished on a Saturday, didn't it? It was 36 holes on the Saturday. So on that yeah. Saturday evening, it was stolen from his bag. He did not have it in his bag for the playoff. Not that he needed it, yeah. but it went missing for a good 30 years. And uh, David Fay, uh, the former 
uh, boss man, the executive director at the USGA, tells a yeah. fascinating story of getting his hands on it and yeah. uh, transporting it back to, you know, get it checked by Hogan and he verified it. And then you now it, it rests in the USGA museum. But, and but I think I think John Capers, uh, the curator at Marion, I yeah. think he's got a, an old set of Ben Hogan irons. And, yeah. and I was there not too long ago and you pick them up and, you you marvel at how he even held onto those old grips and everything. You know they were just unbelievably difficult and yeah. hard to hold on those cord grips. Yeah, John yeah. does an extraordinary job in Marion, and I've yeah, had the pleasure of his company because he, as you say, he's the curator, and they have this little archive room. Um, yeah. And I I did an interview with Justin Rose on the evening that he won in Marion for CNN. And I deliberately went last because ESPN and Golf Channel wanted to get their thing done. And I said, happy to let you guys go. No yeah. problem. Uh, because yeah. I knew, having been there maybe six weeks earlier to film a preview for CNN, and it was my first time visiting Murray, and I got a whole tour of the place. So I knew where the archive room was. And right. uh, so once I finished my interview with Justin, uh, the great thing was that... Uh, I then had an opportunity to do something with him, which was take him into the archive room, which he wasn't aware of because he was the gladiator in the arena for the entire week. So, I mean, he, the, the archive room meant nothing to him at that point in time. Yeah. yeah. And I said, I want to do something. Can you come in here and we just take a photo? And then uh, we did, got this lovely photo taken. But he then suddenly saw what was in front of him, which is a small room, but it is full of priceless memorabilia from yeah. those who have won at Marion, whether it's Eduardo Molinari's, um, uh, I think one of his clubs from when he won the US Amateur there in 05, but more crucially, uh, Jones, his win there in the 20s, and I think it was 1926. You've got uh, things from uh, Mr. Hogan. Uh, your putter is there, if I'm not mistaken, your beautiful little bullseye putter. Yeah, and my, my actual set of irons are now uh, hanging over the fireplace in the dining room. I love it. I mean, they yeah, love the, got, I, they love the history yeah. and they celebrate it so well. Yeah. It's the most beautiful place on earth. I just love uh, visiting Ardmore in Pennsylvania. And yeah. if you ever get a chance, folks, you really need to go there and just. Um, so I'll tell you a I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, Lee Trevino and I uh, had an evening for Alzheimer's to raise money in Dallas and also to make a nice donation to Jim Nance's Alzheimer's Fund. And unbeknownst to Trevino and myself, we after we finished talking, they wanted a photo op. And the host came out and brought out the, the hat that Lee Trevino wore when they had the picture done with the snake. They, so they brought out the hat and the snake. And then they came to me and they brought out an original Marion wicker basket. basket, wicker basket. Love it. And I had I had no idea that they had been sent on loan from Marion, and I thought the wicker <laughs> basket was a gift. So, <laughs> Trevino gave the hat back and the snake back, and I said to a friend of mine, I said, I said, are you going home by the club? He said, Yeah. I said, Well, do me a favor and take this wicker basket for me and put it near my locker and I'll pick it up tomorrow. And uh, after we left, we were standing at the valet and the guy comes up and he says, David, where's the, where's the wicker basket? Where's the wicker basket? I said, oh, I 
gave it to a friend of mine to take home. I said, he's going to take it over to the club in the morning and leave it in near my locker. He said, no, that, that came from Marion. <laughs> I said, oh, are you serious? Are you serious? He, I don't think he slept all night. Anyway, oh, we gave it back and they, they shipped it all back to Marion, which was kind of neat. And do you have um, memorabilia yourself of Marion in your possession, in, in your home? I mean, do you do you have a little room where you can kind of just house certain things? Yeah. I'm sure your wife doesn't want golfy stuff dominating the house. Well, uh, we used to in my Montana, we used to have a beautiful room with all the trophies. But we we got to thinking about what are we going to do with all this stuff? And I don't want it on eBay and I don't want it. My kids don't really want it. My younger son, he loves memorabilia. He's yeah. got a beautiful collection of them. But the important things were like my putter, which was sitting in an umbrella stand. <laughs> and, uh, and Jim Nance asked me one day, he said, where's your bullseye putter? I said, well, I've got it at home somewhere. And he said, well, why don't you send it to Marion? I said, That's mm. a good idea. So I went home and I was watching television. I saw that putter in that umbrella basket. So well, I'll send it to Marion. Well, I, I put it in a box and I took it to the UPS store and I started crying. Mm. I didn't want to give it away. Mm. So anyway, I sent it. But then I thought, well, you know, what do I do with the set irons that I want? So the best thing to do now that I've started this mm-hmm. is to is to give my irons to Marion. Great. Uh, and then uh, Oakland Hills were very nice. They made me a member there. They made me a lifetime member. So the clubs that I won the PGA with, I to Oakland Hills. Wow. So I've, I've done that. I've still got my U.S. Open trophy and my PGA trophy. I've got mm. my Hall of Fame trophy. My son has quite a few of my trophies. Um, but uh, my driver that was in my uh, U.S. Open set is in the Australian Hall of Fame. Super. Um, so I've, I've put them all where they're going to stay for a while. And they'll be seen by people and cherished by those who care. Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah, better than better having than them that. in a, an umbrella stand, to be honest with you, or in yeah, your, no, your no garage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no question. So Beautiful. Okay, I've, so... I've, I've, done with, I've done with those type of things. I've done yeah. what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Um, yeah. How old are you now, David? 73. Right, good. So there's plenty of miles on the clock. Uh, yeah. And more more to come, more to add to it. Hopefully so. Yeah. Tell me this, because I found this particularly fascinating when you told me yourself. But after winning the US Open, you finished with a round of 67. Seven. Okay. And you hit every green in regulation. Yeah. You had how many putts? You know, I've never added it up. Doesn't matter. I guess I had thirty. I had thirty-six. Yeah, when when you added it I up, might have it, had, I might have actually had, might have had thirty-seven because I three putted number five. No, but I one putted one, and I one putted two, so I think I might have had thirty-five putts. Yeah, it all added up to sixty-seven anyway, and victory yeah, in the U.S. Yeah. Open of nineteen eighty-one at yeah. Marion. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just want to ask you because. There you were, U.S. Open champion. And after all of the celebrations and, you know, for, I, I would say for some it's a hard thing to actually process on the night. Um, I'm not sure how you experienced it. I'm, I'm curious to know. But there's a wonderful story about either Monday or Tuesday when you got a very precious phone call. So perhaps you could start with just talking about the experience of finally 
getting your hands on this incredible championship title. Yeah. Well, and, the, and, the trophy comes in a great big case. Yeah. And you have to call a, the Far Hills office and it's got three combinations on it and you have to go through all these combinations <laughs> and you, you get to keep it for a year and then you have to put it back in the case and send it back again. But mm-hmm. no, I was um, I had known Mr. Hogan for quite some time, uh, mainly because his he developed the Apex golf shaft, which was the first actual lightweight steel golf shaft ever produced. And he was so knowledgeable about the game and everything and equipment that he didn't understand why there was so much weight in the shaft and not as much weight in the head. So he worked with True Temper to develop Apex shaft, which was a little larger in diameter so that they could make the walls of the shaft a little thinner so they could maintain the strength through the larger diameter but uh, decrease the weight because of the thickness of the walls of the shaft. And in those days, it was hard to get supply of equipment. You know, if you asked for grips, they'd send you a a dozen. You know, if you asked for golf balls, they'd send you two dozen. And getting steel shafts that were reasonably consistent was very difficult. And I liked his concept of playing with a lighter shaft. And he was the only one, and he had a, it was a proprietary shaft, so True Temper could not ship them other than to him. So I would go up there quite often and, and go in the back. And every time I went in there, his office was in the front of the building. His secretary would see me and always, would you like to say hello to Mr. Hogan? Sure. You'd go talk and everything. And 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 I was at the stage where I knew who and what he had done and everything, but I hadn't really studied Mr. Hogan that much. And he to the back with me and chat a little bit. And uh, and then after I won the Open, he called up and said, you know, come up and have lunch. So I went up to Shady Oaks uh, on several occasions and had lunch with him. And uh, in, by those days, he um, was a heavy drinker. Mm-hmm. And he um, would have a couple of martinis for lunch. And we would talk. And most of the time, we didn't even talk about golf. Just talked about random things. Interesting too. He, I think he was a he was. Well, I know he was. He was a very very good friend to Bruce Devlin, and he was also a very dear friend to an Australian golfer named Norman von Nieder. Amazing, yeah. Who was he was a teacher and a, a good player and. He had met Von Neider at the Masters, and they'd become friends. And I think, I'm only surmising this, but I think Mr. Hogan, given the way he came up, I think he also realized that, man, here are these guys that are flying from Australia, mm-hmm. you know, and they're they're traveling on Greyhound buses, and they're mm-hmm. staying in cheap hotels, and, they, and all they want to do is play golf. So mm-hmm. I think he had... Uh, an appreciation for not just being on the tour, but how you got here. And um, and so he was always extremely nice to me. I never played with him. I wish I had of, but um, uh, he was always very nice to me. In fact, I won 
both my majors uh, with that shaft in my clubs. And hence his respect for you um, on many different levels, but for him to call you and congratulate you. Yeah. Hogan, who won yeah, famously cool. at Marion and <laughs> Oakland Hills, and he's calling you David Graham. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's the coolest story ever. It's like, uh, and to hear you say it firsthand is just, it means the world. Uh, for anyone who well, cares about that, golf, it's amazing. Yeah, I think too, I think that the first shock is after you win and after you do the press, you go to your locker to get your shoes and change, and there's a letter in there from Jack Nicholas. Wow. So, yeah, a lot of nice things happened. Yeah. David, I have to tell you, I just find I find you the most special man, and uh, it has been such a pleasure. I know we're going to do a bit more uh, in the future, but um, I tell I tell you what we'll do: we'll finish with one track. And I know okay. you're I know you're a big fan of the Eagles, so I if am. you, you want to pick any of the tracks, maybe that Maureen likes or that your kids like, or especially that you like, let's finish with that and uh, let's sign off on this. Little voice. Why don't together. you pick it? You you pick the one you like because I just listened to their whole concert, so I've had plenty of the Eagles in the last <laughs> week or so. So okay, pick okay. one that you like. All right, I'm going to pick if this you one. Can, yeah, I mean, there's so many to pick from. Um, I mean, I'm yeah. a big fan of Joe Walsh. I'll be honest with you, I love Pretty Maids all in a row. Um, yeah. But I like Timothy B. Schmidt and. I, I mean, obviously, Henley and Fry were the, the main dudes, and then you've got uh, Don Felder, who was so excellent on Hotel California. But I just think for, for everybody oh. out there, let's go with That's Peace. That's their most favourite song. I know. Play Hotel California. Okay, right. There you go. Yeah. Let's press play and sign off and say, David Graham, thank you again. Uh, regards to Maureen and all your family and uh, to all your fans around the world who will get to listen to this at some point, when and where they want, because that's the beauty of podcasts. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, folks. And David, I can't wait to see you in person in the very near future once we get through everything that the whole world is going through right now. So uh, stay safe, stay well, and uh, stay upright. I will stay upright. God bless.
just prisoners here of our own device. And in the master's chambers, they're gathered for the feast. They stab it with their stealing eyes, but they just can't. listening to Shane O on the radio which is a niche media production any and all unauthorized use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright